Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Okay, so um, as I said earlier, um, it's a real treat to um, share with you tonight uh, my uh, good friend and uh, respected colleague, uh, Guy Armstrong. I probably teach with Guy uh, and his, his wife, Sally Armstrong, and, um, and Carol Wilson uh, probably uh, teach more w- with them over the last 20 years than, than anyone. We, we always teach the February retreat together. And uh, we've gone through so many things together. Guy and Sally are probably as important uh, players, other than uh, uh, besides Jack Cornfield, of Spirit Rock being what Spirit Rock is, uh, especially uh, the, uh, the construction of both the meditation hall and the the, the new meditation uh, community hall. This is just what he does on the, on the side, besides all the teaching, going to countless meetings and uh, having a brilliant uh, flair for creating beautiful things. Uh, but he's um, he's just a, a very special combination of clarity, depth of of dharma, and and good heart. Um, he's when we teach on. On the uh, on the February treat, you know, I teach about oh love and compassion. He teaches about dependent origination and <laughs> karma and rebirth and those things. You know, thank you, guy. Uh, so uh, it, it's a real it's a real treat to have him here uh, with us to share about this work that he's put the last. Uh, two years or more into uh, a beautiful book called Emptiness, which I I highly recommend. I'm enjoying it very, very much. So take it away. (laughs) James, thank you. Um, And it's a pleasure. It is a pleasure to be here. James and I have spent so much time together over the last 20 years in teaching and in meetings. I was sort of estimating the other day, I think all told we've probably spent about two years of our life working together. So he is a real Dharma brother and a great friend. And coming into his uh, community just feels like coming into family. So I'm happy to, to be with you all tonight. I would like to talk about this topic of emptiness, which is not the simplest topic in the world to talk about. I usually teach this theme in a seven-day retreat. There are a lot of pieces to it. So this evening, I just want to hit a few of the highlights and leave you with uh, maybe a little bit to reflect on, a little a bit of food for thought. I hope that will interest you. One thing to say about this word is it's not the most appealing for the central concept of a world religion. You know, the Hindus have uh, bliss and devotion. The Christians have love and charity and the Buddhists have emptiness. It's not much of a hook. But it has been really central to all the schools of Buddhism for the last 2,500 years, starting with the original uh, teachings of the Buddha and the centuries of early Buddhism, the early Mahayana, which expressed itself through the Prajnaparamita Sutras and the teachings of Nagarjuna, the later evolution in East Asia, As we sit in this temple, I feel like the emptiness vibe is just kind of permeating from the devotion and the philosophies that inform Chinese Buddhism, and then it translated to Japan as well. So this has been a theme, and I would say the central thread that links all the different traditions of Buddhism, the major schools, over the last 2,500 years. But there are a lot of pieces to it, so we'll just touch on a few tonight. Just to kind of illustrate the the range of it, there's a young Tibetan uh, lama named Mingyur Rinpoche. He's a wonderful teacher and a terrific practitioner. 
he visited Marin uh, for the first time about 20 years ago. I've forgotten whether it was 97 or 98. And I had a little bit of connection to him through knowing his brother, Sony Rinpoche. So I got to meet him on his visit to California. And living in Marin, I thought, well, let's take him for a little bit of a sightseeing tour. Maybe he'd like to see the top of Mount Tam. So we drove up to the top of Mount Tam, and on the way I was trying to make conversation. I said, "Um, Rinpoche, how do you find the West? He said, square and clean. End of conversation. Okay, I better try again. Uh, Rinpoche, do you think Tibetans are happier than Westerners? Yes. End of dialogue. So we got up to the top of Mount Tam, and if you've ever been up there, you know that there's an asphalt path that goes around the peak. A beautiful 360-degree views of the whole Bay Area and the ocean. So we were walking around on that path, and I just thought, I better try one more time to talk to this esteemed Lama. So I said, uh, what's the difference between the views of the Dzogchen school and the Madhyamaka school? of Tibetan Buddhism, two central schools within that lineage. Then he got interested. Ah, he said. He, you know, he perked up and his eyes lit up. He said, the first thing you have to understand is there are 18 different kinds of emptiness. And then he sat right down on the path. It was only six feet wide. He sat down, so we all had to sit down. We totally blocked the path going around. And he talked for about 10 minutes about the 18 kinds of emptiness in these two schools of Tibetan Buddhism. So this is a subject for a lot of reflection. If you look on Amazon, you can probably find hundreds of books on this topic. Well thought of in the Buddhist world, reflected on a lot, written on a lot. So just some key points uh, this evening. The main pointing behind this concept is that the world is not as solid or as substantial as we take it to be. That's a summary of the message of emptiness. And there are two key points I'd like to pull out of this. One is that there's something we haven't quite understood about the way the world is. There's the, uh, a very famous text among the Prajnaparamita body of texts called the Heart Sutra. You've probably heard of it. Many of you may have recited it. And it begins describing the practice of a bodhisattva named Avalokiteshvara. Avalokiteshvara is an Indian being who is the embodiment of compassion. And when this image of Avalokiteshvara migrated to China, it turned into Kuan Yin, the female principle of compassion. And I'm sure there's a There's one at the back, for sure, who's facing the front. The white statue at the back is of Kuan Yin. Beautiful devotional figure. Avalokiteshvara is the male representation from India. And the very start of the Heart Sutra says, the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, when practicing deeply the quality of wisdom, perceived that mind and body are empty and was saved from all suffering and distress. So within the tradition, that's the liberating power of this kind of insight. It is meant to save us from suffering and distress. The kind of meditation that James and I teach is called insight meditation. The Pali word for it, the old Indian word, is vipassana. And the purpose of it is so that we gain more understanding, more insight into the way things are. And vipassana literally means to see clearly to see clearly how things are. So our development of insight meditation is meant to bring us to the same understanding that Avalokiteshvara had, and that purpose of that is to liberate us. This is not just a philosophical exercise or an intellectual exercise, but it's meant to free our hearts and minds. It's meant to lead us away from unhappiness, from stress, from worry, from anxiety, and into a great degree of freedom and happiness. So that's the purpose behind all these teachings, and I hope we keep that 
uh, view on it as I talk this evening. And one thing to, to clear up in the beginning, emptiness does not mean in the Buddhist lineage what it sometimes might mean in the West. It doesn't mean a vacancy, a total absence, nothingness, despair, cynicism, hopelessness. That's not the intention. It is rather to open up this spaciousness where we feel the fullness of life coming into the empty space. So we'll talk about that more as we go. Now you probably know that in Buddhism there's a lot of emphasis given to the understanding of impermanence. We look into the fact that everything is always changing on every level. The personal momentary level, the level of one lifetime, the level of the cosmos and the planets and the sun, everything eventually comes and goes. And there's a reason that we look into that so deeply in Buddhism. It's so that we don't hang on so tightly to things that are bound to change. Because if we're hanging on to something and it changes, we're going to suffer from that. So emptiness takes this principle one step further. And the seeing of emptiness is there was nothing there to hang on to in the first place. We'll talk about this more. But we see the insubstantial nature of the way the world actually is. We see there's not a thing there that we can ever hang on to. And that also helps us to let go and keeps us out of more trouble. So we're going to look at um, two or three ways that emptiness will show up in our meditation, in our investigation. The first is emptiness of self, that there's no solid core in the center of this mind-body process. This is the teaching known in our lineage as anatta or not-self. It's a central teaching of the Buddha in our lineage. The second is the emptiness of phenomena, which doesn't mean that the things that we see don't exist, but it means that they're not solid. So Suzuki Roshi has this nice line. He says, of course the bird we see and hear exists, but what I mean by that may not be quite what you mean by that. So we want to learn to see the bird the way Suzuki Roshi sees it, because that will keep us from suffering. So let's talk first about this teaching on the emptiness of self. This is from an Indian teacher named Nisargadatta Maharaj, a teacher in the Advaita Vedanta tradition, who said the aim of all the yogas, and here yoga is any path that leads to liberation. If it leads to freedom, it's considered a yoga. The aim of all the yogas is to free you from the calamity of separate existence. This is meant to be a kind of provocative statement. Why is separate existence a calamity? Because once we feel separate from everything else that is, it creates in our minds a sense of duality of self and other. And once we have a self, there's something that has to be defended, protected, nourished, And that is constantly under threat by what is seen as other. Also, the idea that we are completely separate leads to a sense of isolation. This leads to a sense of not belonging, a sense of insecurity, and an underlying anxiety. You know, I think this is one of the hardest things in the West today because the sense of community is breaking down in so many Western societies, most Western societies. So people are losing the connections to family. They're losing the connections to neighbors, to close friends who you meet day by day. And it leaves the individual feeling alone, isolated and somewhat fearful. So as we look into this question of the emptiness of self, some of those boundaries that we've created can start to weaken and eventually fade away, at least at times. In the Buddha's lifetime, 
he had a cousin and an attendant named Ananda. The name means bliss, so there's a little more inviting word. Ananda is one of the sweetest fellows who shows up in the early teachings of the Buddha. Very kind and caring person. But he was, he was younger and he was often a little bit behind the other practitioners in understanding. So there's one text where he comes up to the Buddha and he says, well, sir, you're always saying that the world is empty, but what do you mean by that? And the Buddha says, the world is empty because it's empty of a self or what belongs to a self. Well, that's interesting and a little bit counterintuitive. Does it feel like your world is empty of a self right now? Probably not. Most of us feel like the self is there most of the time. But what the Buddha is saying is that maybe there's something to look at here. So let's, let's look into this a little more. Maybe we don't fully understand what we carry as the idea of a self. So let me ask you a couple of simple questions. First one is, how old are you? You don't have to say. That would be embarrassing for many of us. But it's a pretty simple question, right? Like if you say, I'm 39 years old, what do you really mean by that? Are your thoughts 39 years old? Is your mood 39 years old? What's 39 years old? The body, right? So we really mean the body is 39 years old. So here we're saying, I'm the body, and it's 39 years old. So here, I is being equated with the body. Same thing. But what if I ask you, what color are your eyes? Again, easy question. I'd say my eyes are brown. But here, I'm not saying I'm brown. It's not me as the eyes are brown. But rather, I'm someone who has eyes, So now I'm the owner of the body. They're my eyes, or I could talk about my body. So are you the body, or are you something separate from it that owns it? And can you be both? How many selves are you in any given moment? Then we can do the same question with emotions. You know, we might say, I'm feeling happy or I'm sad, So here we're equating ourselves with the emotion, with happiness or sadness. But we could also talk about my joys and my sorrows. So we could be the body, we could be the owner of the body, we could be the emotion, or we could be the owner of the emotion. Can you be all of them in one moment? It doesn't quite make sense, does it? Usually people who feel they're more than oneself are offered medication. So you might not want to go around telling people you feel your four selves at once. And then there's one other way that we really uh, create this sense of self quite often. And that is maybe the deepest sense is we feel like we're an observer that's located uh, between the ears and behind the eyes, sort of two inches into the center of the head. And it's kind of looking out, seeing the world, hearing sounds, feeling feelings. And that's really who we most deeply are, this observer. So this is five ways we've seen that we create a sense of I. And this creating a sense of I by connecting it to part of our experience is called identification. We identify the I as being just one part of experience. Do any of these really stand up to logic? And moreover, have you ever found any of these as an individual being? Have you ever found that observer? Have you ever found the one who owns the body or who owns the emotion? William James tried, and he said, when I search for myself, all I can find is a tickle at the back of my throat. It's a bit like that. It's quite subtle, this sense. So we, we've used these words since we were old enough to understand. Before we were two years old, we were hearing and using these words. And just by the force of habit, we've come to believe that they actually point to something that exists. 
We believe that there is an I somewhere here that these words point to, that something exists that we can put our finger on if we're clever enough and say, that's the self. That's what I really is. You can search and search. You won't find it. The philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein said, the self is just a shadow cast by grammar. We've used the language so much, we've come to believe in it. But it doesn't point to anything real. Now, there is a being here. There's no doubt about that. And there's a being there, and there's a being there. But within this being is only an impermanent flow of body stuff and mind stuff. Always changing. Nothing is fixed within it. There's no core at the center that owns it, to whom it's happening, or who controls the whole thing. This is the understanding that the Buddha wanted to communicate. This takes some reflection, because this sense is so conditioned. But through reflection and through meditation, we can explore it. For example, I'll bet that when you were meditating tonight, there were times when the eye didn't seem that strong. When you're in a place that's calm and settled, it can feel peaceful, it can feel spacious and open, and it doesn't feel like there's such a strong center. But at other times, the eye can get really stirred up. Somebody says something rude to you. Driver cuts you off on the freeway. And all of a sudden, this eye springs up with some force. How could they do that to me? You know, I have to say something to them. I have to confront them about this. So then the eye becomes very strong. But at other times, it can feel quite weak. So is an easy way to investigate. Notice times when the sense of I is quite weak and other times when it feels really strong. So it's not just a steady ongoing thing, but it kind of grows and diminishes with time and circumstances. Okay, so if the I in the Buddha's view isn't quite real, what is? So there's this um, very interesting teaching uh, that he gave that points to the basis for how Buddhists see, um, see what, is, what is real, what could be um, looked at, what should be investigated. And this is a little text called the Discourse on Totality. So in this, the Buddha said, listen, attend carefully, and I will teach you the totality of things. First of all, that's a very bold thing to say, isn't it? Just tune in, you know, I'm going to teach you the totality in about two minutes. You know, in the West, Einstein never said that. Marx never said that. Freud never said that. Here's the Buddha 2,500 years ago. I'm going to teach you the totality. And so he said, what is the totality of things? It is just the eye and sights, the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and sensations, the mind and objects of mind. Which means basically thoughts and emotions. Is there anything else in your experience that falls outside of these six kind of categories? You know, basically it's sight, sound, smell, taste, touches, thoughts, and feelings. Is there anything else? Is this a fair description of our reality? It's pretty good, isn't it? And the reason this is so interesting is if you look at many philosophers, they talk about quite different things. You know, how many angels dance on the head of a pin or is there a God? The Buddha was interested in pointing directly at our own experience. And that's what's so radical about this formulation. He's saying if you want to understand what matters, look at your own direct experience. So this, is, this becomes the basis for our meditation practice. We feel sensations of body and breath. We pay attention to sounds when our eyes are open, to sights, when we're walking, the sense of movement. And then we know our own thoughts and feelings. So this becomes a map of where our meditation practice can focus. And the reason that that's so helpful is it's in these areas that we get caught and we become unhappy. 
So it's in relation to these six kinds of things that we suffer, and it's in relation to them then we can get free. This is kind of interesting. There are only ever six things happening. Normally, lay life seems really complicated, doesn't it? Really complicated. You know, there are income taxes and jobs to carry out and children to look after and all the myriad problems of them coming into adulthood or parents to care for with their aging process and loss of faculties. But in the pointings of the Buddha, there are only ever these six things to look at that make up our suffering or our liberation. So it's a really interesting pointer to what really matters in life, a pointer of where to look. So what is interesting about this for our particular kind of investigation this evening is how does the self, the sense of self, get created? Because we all have a sense of self, but the Buddha said the self isn't intrinsic. So how does it get created? So again, I'll just ask you to look at your experience. You're sitting quietly. And the sense of self, you'll notice it when the words are I, me, my, and mine. The language is the clue. So when you're sitting there, does it ever pop up and just go, I? Does it ever pop up and just go, me? Not really, does it? When you look at the way we form the concept of I or my, it's in relation to something else. There's a pain in this area, so I say, my knee hurts. There's a a memory about a friend. I say, I'm thinking about my friend. The I and my are extras there. We could just say pain. We could just say memory. We could just say image, but we connect the eye to it. That means we identify and we add something there that doesn't have to be there. Now, the words are useful when we talk to each other. You know, if I say to you, I'm happy, what that identifies for you is where the emotion is taking place. That's different than if I say, James is happy. But that's just an indication of location. It doesn't mean we have to own it. So the words are useful when we communicate, but when you describe your own experience to yourself, see what happens if you don't use these words. An emotion comes up, and you could say, I'm feeling really anxious today. Or you could just say, anxiety is arising and being known. See how it feels to make that just little change in language. And notice that the sense of I isn't always there, but it gets created again and again and again when we lay claim to something. Also notice that when it's weak, there's generally a sense of peace. And when the I comes up strongly, there's usually some kind of turmoil going on. I want, I don't want, I like, I don't like, I need, I must... This strong attachment to I is integrally connected to our suffering. And at times when it's weak, there's less suffering. There's a sense of deep peace. Okay, so this is the sense of I um, and the creation of self that as we open it up leads to one kind of emptiness, leads to more spaciousness, less anxiety, less self-concern and self-obsession. So the second sense in which emptiness is used classically is to explore the emptiness of phenomena. That what that means is the things that we see in the world are not solid in the way that we think they are. Now, we're all good students of 20th century science, and we know quantum physics pointed this out like 100 years ago right? You know that the rug there is not mostly matter. What is it mostly? It's space, isn't it? Everything that you can see and touch, however solid it feels, is made up of atoms. 
Atoms are protons and neutrons orbited by electrons, and they are mostly space. So we know that this whole physical world truly is mostly space. Has that made any of us a lot happier? (laughs) It doesn't seem to have. I was a physics major in college. My professors did not seem a lot happier. You know, and yet they really knew this. So what's happened? We haven't quite integrated it. We haven't taken in this knowledge, and we haven't seen it directly for ourselves. So the aim of meditation is that we start to see some of this stuff for ourselves uh, more directly. I'll just read a passage from another of the Buddha's discourses. Again, it's a kind of uh, wake-up call. So he was um, giving a teaching. He was sitting on the, the banks of the river Ganges and giving a teaching to a group of students. And he addressed the students thus. Monks, he said, suppose that this river Ganges was carrying along a big lump of foam. So I ask you to imagine that. If there's a big lump of foam, it really looks like there's something there, doesn't it? Big, you know, it's got a certain color, got a certain change of color, a certain texture. And yet, what would happen if you went up to grab it? would just go poof, wouldn't it? Because there's nothing really there. Suppose this river Ganges was carrying along a great lump of foam. A person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a lump of foam? So too, bhikkhus, whatever kind of matter there is, a practitioner inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in matter? This is basically the same insight that quantum physicists came to 2,400 years later, but the Buddha had realized it directly from his own meditation practice, and he's inviting us to learn it from our own meditation practice. So, just a simple way in, take the body as a place to check out. This is as close as we can get to knowing matter from the inside because our own awareness runs throughout the body. So what happens if you direct your awareness inside the body, you can do it right now, and ask, is there anything solid in your experience? So we're talking about the field of sensations that we feel throughout the body. Is there any sensation in your body that is solid, fixed and unchanging? Or when you look into the body, is it more like a dynamic field of energy that's characterized by pulsation, vibration, flickering, change, and variation? I just encourage you to investigate now and at home in your meditation and see Is the body really solid, felt from within, or is it more characterized by change, by flickering, by pulsing? Take a look and see. If we can find that there's no solid matter felt from the inside, that gives us a certain certain amount of confidence. Maybe all matter is just like this body. Another way that form is like a mass of foam. James and I were teaching at uh, Spirit Rock one February retreat. And I was giving the Dharma talk that evening. So it was about 8 o'clock at night. And outside the hall, there was this loud scream. It was like a a baby crying in, in some kind of pain. So it was unsettling. But a couple of staff people left the room and went out to look to see what had happened. So I kept giving the talk. And the talk finished about 8.30. And then a number of us went out and looked to see what what it was that had happened. So staff people had gathered around in a small circle around 
the body of a deer. And the deer was lying on the ground near one of the residence halls with its neck at a really odd angle. And the staff people had checked and found the deer was dead. They reported that as they came up to the deer, they saw a couple of large dogs running away from the site. And that happens in Woodacre. There are dogs that kind of roam the hills. There are a lot of deer. And occasionally dogs will will kill a deer. Um, But I'd never seen it happen at Spirit Rock. But that's what had happened, it seems. So we knew the deer was dead, but we stood in a circle and said some phrases of loving kindness for the deer, hoping that it might help um, it on its journey. Then uh, the staff people went in to call the Humane Society. I said, we've got a dead deer here. Could you come and pick it up? And the Humane Society said, yes, they would. Uh, said, we'll come tomorrow. Please take the body down near the entrance, down the driveway near the entrance, and we'll come and, we'll come and get it. So the staff did that. They drove the deer down and they laid it to rest by uh, the parking lot right on the edge of the driveway. But the Humane Society never came. So our retreat was going on for another couple of weeks, so I would pass the body every day and I would keep checking on it. So what do you imagine happened? Little by little, the, most of the body of the deer disappeared because we have scavengers on the land. There are raccoons, there are turkey vultures, there are crows, there are mice, there are rats, there are insects. So every day that I went by, there was a little less of the deer there until after about 10 days, there was only the hoofs, the fur, and the bones that were left. So the rest of that deer had just gone, like a mass of foam. Poof. Nothing more left. Another way to look at this, uh, Dalai Lama was giving a series of teachings a few years ago. I bet some of you were there. He was down at uh, Shoreline Amphitheater in Mountain View, and he was teaching on the Heart Sutra, a, you know, central text to all the traditions. And I think, James, you, you were there also, right? So a number of us went down to hear the three days of teachings. And it was a beautiful, uh, a beautiful setup. It was early May, about this time of year. So at Shoreline, there's a big stage. There are a bunch of chairs in a semicircle. And then there's a very uh, broad hillside, which at that time was still green because of the winter rains. So you could sit out on the hill look up to the Dalai Lama on his big throne on the stage, and he was surrounded by monastics from all the different traditions. So there were Tibetan monks and nuns in their bright red and orange robes. There were the Theravadan monks and nuns in the dark brown of the forest tradition. There were the uh, Korean monastics in their gray robes, the Zen, uh, Japanese Zen monks in in their black robes. So the whole stage was just a colorful show of uh, Buddhist monastics. Actually, it was like a Buddhist Woodstock. It kind of felt, <laughs> kind of felt like we were at a festival. Except where the, where the speakers should have been for the Grateful Dead, there was a big painting of the Potala Palace, and that was the backdrop. So the Dalai Lama was saying that the teachings in the Heart Sutra point to this understanding that there are three forms of suffering that we encounter in life. One of them is what's called dukkha-dukkha. You know, dukkha is the Pali word for suffering. It means the, the pain of life. Dukkha-dukkha is the direct experience of what's painful or unpleasant. So it's kind of like a double shot of espresso. This is a double shot of dukkha, the pain of pain. There's another way that suffering comes to us, which is when something has been pleasant for a while, but then it changes. If we're expecting it to continue, we suffer from the change. So the bowl of ice cream finishes. <laughs> you know, the, the love, loving, falling in love part of the relationship is over and we get down to working on uh, living together. So the pleasant things change and they turn into difficulty and that's called the uh, suffering of alternation. Then the third kind is called the suffering of unstable formations. 
And what this means, the Dalai Lama said, it's really important to understand this if you really want to help people. It's not that things go along for a while in a solid way and then it changes to something else. He said things are changing moment by moment by moment in every moment of our experience. Nothing is solid even for a few moments. Another way to say it is that if you look closely at experience, and this is what the Buddha did with the body and with the senses, things are dissolving moment by moment by moment. And this is the instability of formations. There's nothing to rely on. This is the seeing into emptiness. The emptiness of phenomena is directly understood when we see this moment-to-moment dissolving nature within our experience, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts and feelings. Then we know, you know, we shouldn't hold on to things that are going to change, but we really see we can't hold on to anything that's dissolving. It's not possible. There's nothing solid enough to hold on to. So both of these, the teaching on impermanence and the teaching on the emptiness of phenomena, teach us not to grasp. Because we are conditioned to look for the next hit of something pleasing and to hold on to it for as long as we can. But that strategy doesn't ultimately work. It keeps us busy trying to find the next source of pleasure, but eventually it, it leaves us. And then we strive to find the next. There's another way to live. The other way to live is we let go. And in that letting go, we let go of some of the knot of selfing that we create moment after moment, trying to bring in the pleasure and keep away the pain. So we start to see we're empty in two ways. There's no fixed core at the center of this mind-body process that we have to keep protecting and defending. And the elements of our actual experience are all just coming and going, pulsing on and off, moment after moment. Both these insights teach us not to struggle and hold on, but to let go. So the way this letting go feels, and you can check this out in your meditation, is that it leads to a settling back into an observing of the present moment that doesn't have such a strong agenda. But it's a relaxation and an ease and kind of letting life flow. It's like we relax into the Dharma that's unfolding, which is really just nature. And we trust in that. Nature can hold us. When we release the self-centered grasping, nature holds us. And this is what brings in a much deeper sense of peace and ease in our day-to-day living. Not only that, but this opening up to the unfolding of nature also prepares the mind for an even deeper letting go, which is an opening that leads to enlightenment. So I don't use that word a lot in Dharma talks, but I just wanted to mention it tonight Because it is the purpose of the Buddha's teaching. It is to find the possibility of a peace that truly can liberate us from all forms of suffering. This is why the Buddha taught. And it is a kind of peace that people are still discovering today. So both the spaciousness and ease that we can experience in meditation and in life come from letting go. And also letting go leads to this deeper opening to a truly liberating understanding. So what happens when we let go and relax into the nature is just that we see that life is proceeding from many causes and conditions. And it's led up to this moment. This moment couldn't be any different than it is because of all the causes and conditions that have led up to it. And then this moment conditions the next moment which conditions the next moment with its causes and so forth. So we start to see this unfolding is taking care of itself if we don't struggle. Now sometimes, of course, you all know, 
We need to intervene in the world when things are going off track. And we need to adjust the conditions that are happening in our personal life, in our family, in the greater society, in the environment, and in the world. But we can find through meditation the way to engage with that intervention in a way that comes from peace and ease rather than just more angst. So the meditative opening is to allow all the causes and conditions to be seen and to unfold. And there are so many of these. There are physical causes, there are biological causes, there are chemical causes, there are emotional, psychological, social, karmic. All these causes and conditions are weaving through to make the very complex play of life. But we find a way to be in it from a place of relaxation and ease. And this is what happens when the tightness of the self starts to get unwound. And this knot that we might feel in the center of things starts to open up and relax. So I just want to close with a story of one um, meditator at the time of the Buddha. He was a spiritual teacher already named Bahia. Bahia was living in the south of India. The Buddha was teaching in the north. And Bahia was quite developed. He had many students. He lived very simply. Uh, He had a very pure mind. But one day he asked himself the question, um, am I enlightened? Well, the asking of that question is kind of a clue. (laughs) Because if you're enlightened, you, you know it. So it said, a heavenly being came down and addressed Bahia and said, Bahia, I- I'm sorry to tell you, but you're not enlightened. <laughs> bad, that's the bad news. The other bad news is you're not even on a path to enlightenment because <laughs> you're not doing the right practice. So Bahia was a little disappointed, but he said, well, do you know of anyone who is? And so this heavenly being said, yes, there's a teacher who goes by the name of the Buddha, who's teaching currently in northern India. He's right now in the town of Savati. And you can go and visit him. So Bahia would do anything for his spiritual practice. So he immediately left his home and started walking to the north to find the Buddha in the town of Savati. So he got to the town, and as he's walking around, he sees a person walking in a monk's robe, sort of matches the description he's heard, And this being has a lot of dignity and a lot of radiance, a lot of uh, beauty of spirit. So Bahia walks up to him and says, are you the one they call the Buddha? The Buddha said, yes, I am. He said, please, sir, can you teach me your teaching briefly? (laughs) I've come all the way across half of India. I really want to understand. Well, at that time, the Buddha was walking with his alms bowl in search of his daily meal. So he said, no, Bahia, I'm sorry, I can't teach. This is not the right time. I'm walking for my morning meal. But Bahia was persistent. He said, please, sir, life is short. Who knows how long you may live or I may live. Please share your teaching briefly. And again, the Buddha said, this is not a convenient time. Walking for my midday meal. But Bahia didn't give up. He asked a third time, and as often happens, the third time the Buddha says, okay. And then he said, This is how you should train, Bahia. In the seen, let there be just the seen. In the heard, let there be just the heard. In the sensed, let there be just the sensed. In the cognized, let there be just the cognized. Do you notice what's missing? It's not being claimed as I or mine. Then there will be no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. Then you will be neither here nor there nor in between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. On hearing that, Bahia's mind woke up. He was so right because of his own spiritual practice. He was ready to hear it and he became awakened just on hearing that brief instruction. He thanked the Buddha wandered off. He was probably looking for his midday meal. He happened to travel through a pasture where 
A mother cow was guarding her calf. The cow felt threatened, attacked Bahia, and gored him. He died on the spot. So his request to the Buddha, who knows how long either of us will be here, was very timely. So the monks were very concerned. They said, oh, Bhante, this person has come such a long way to see you, and then he died. The Buddha said, don't worry. He was awakened before he died. So his visit was uh, fruitful, came to maturity. So this is the potential power of seeing through the limitation of self. The letting go of self has been for 2,500 years a doorway to awakening and continues to be today. So that's the power of emptiness. That's the power of this central teaching. Okay, thank you all very much for your attention. And we have time for a couple of questions, if there are any. Um, Ernie, yeah, the microphones. If you'd put it on the mic, please, so everyone can, can hear. Yeah, hello, Guy. Good evening. Um, over the years in practice... I've had a very few, very brief kinds of experiences of walking around the world and not being Ernie. Nevertheless, there's still a location of perceptions. I mean, there's a still a here, and there's still something or someone or some, some entity or some being or some you know, gadget or whatever it is that's still walking around the world from that point of view. So who or what is that? <laughs> So I, I expect a number of you have had these moments of glimpsing the absence of self. And the first thing I'll just ask you to check out in your experience is, how does that experience feel when the self temporarily is absent? So, It's just very, for me, it's just a very ordinary kind of way of being in the world, except that I'm, I'm missing. Is there uh, peace and ease or is there suffering? Peace and ease, yes. Yeah. There's just just a sense of being basically. Yeah. So when this happens, take a look at what the emotional tone of that experience is and see if it isn't one of peace and ease and absence of suffering. So many of us have had that kind of opening and that experience, and yet the self tends to come back. The sense of self tends to come back. Yeah, very right. quickly, usually. <laughs> so what I've observed is that the more I let myself open to these moments and the more I understand the truth of it, the more my mind finds its way back to that way of being more and more often. And over time, I think one comes to stabilize in that kind of peace and ease and the openness that comes with it. But... The sense of self doesn't go away, according to the text, until full enlightenment. So we continue to observe its, its appearance, but as time goes by, we're not so taken in by that. We know, we have seen the truth many, many times. The self isn't always there, and it's not intrinsic. And the more it um, fades away, the more the experience of life is one of non-separation, and openness, receptivity, and ease. And basically, when the, the self is a burden, the belief in the self is a burden, and it weighs us down with fear, anxiety, and desire, as that lifts, there's a greater sense of openness, and out of that openness come, um, easy, comes easy access to qualities like love, compassion, and joy. So as the self thins, it's not just a metaphysical event that happens, there's an openness of heart that springs out of that that makes life really rich and beautiful, as Mr. Joy would probably <laughs> attest for all of you. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Guy. All right, thanks, Annie. Any other questions? Yeah. Yes. Um, isn't there a self that lets go of the self? Isn't there an entity? And I'm, I'm not flippant about it. Isn't there an entity that observes and that is actually making decisions that affect beyond the conditions 
that says that that observe all the experiences, all the objects of mind, reflects them and says, "Oh, okay, now I understand," and adjusts the what I would call the the, the lower level self accordingly. No, it's a really good question, and um, it's one that I do answer at greater length in the book. But to say really briefly, there is a sense of agency within us. And when I talked about how causes and conditions uh, lead to the next moment, lead to the next moment, that shouldn't be taken as being deterministic. Because it's best to act, or let me put it this way, the spiritual path unfolds if you act as though there is free will. In fact, our will is somewhat conditioned. You were pointing to the issue of deciding, and there's a sense of agency that makes decisions. That, that deciding is conditioned by many, many different factors, the most relevant of which are the states of mind that are present right then. For instance, decisions that come out of fear, anxiety, upset, are different than the kind of decisions that come out of love, compassion, generosity. So the decision, there is not one entity that makes a decision, but there is a factor of mind called volition that operates in any given moment, influenced by the other qualities of mind that are present there. So an impulse, an urge, a motive, a direction, a movement comes out of this factor of volition influenced by the other mind states that are present right there. There's not an entity that's doing that decision, but there is an agency that acts. Similarly, there's not an observer, but there's a faculty of observing. This is interesting. So mindfulness is one faculty of observing. There's not an entity that, who is being mindful, but mindfulness is a factor that comes into our experience and carries out that observing function. So these are great questions. They can all be explored and resolved within your meditation. Thank you. And there was one more question up front, if we could hit that one kind of forgotten what I was going to say exactly, but okay. something around compassion and empathy, uh, compassion and empathy, um, the fine line between detachment and having empathy and compassion and then doing something about it and maybe having to do a few steps to help someone, um, you know, rather than saying, oh, that's just the way it happens, like, you know, let it be or whatever. Um, yes. So, does that make sense? No, no, it's a a really good question. Because if one only dwells on the emptiness side of things, let's put it like this. You could start seeing everybody as just collections of atoms and molecules, right? The scientific worldview, and I was kind of into this in my teens, was as I was studying physics, was just seeing people as collections of atoms and molecules, And it doesn't really matter what happens to atoms and molecules, right? When you start seeing the emptiness of things, you could take it in a direction that says it doesn't matter what happens because it's all empty. That's a real misreading of the Buddha's teachings. So the way I like to say it is that the insight into emptiness needs to grow up in parallel with the unfolding of love and compassion in our meditation practice and in our direct experience. So then, when we look on others who are going through difficulty, the lack of our own self-obsession actually opens the door for more empathy to come through. And because the boundaries have melted somewhat, we don't feel so separate from the people who are going through difficulty. So we say in our tradition, emptiness comes, I'm sorry, compassion comes out of emptiness. When there's emptiness of self, then the heart flowers. So one of the things that we encourage is to let compassion flower, and it will direct you what needs to be done. So compassion isn't just a sweet feeling. It's an active wish to relieve the suffering of others. So it carries a little bit of that volition that we were just talking about a minute ago. And if there's real emptiness then that volition can move forward without fear to act in the world. 
So we need this compassionate response in the world, you know, on the relationship level, on the family level, on the social level, on the global level. I feel like if something is making you anxious or upset or suffer because someone you see something happening, mm-hmm. then that's a good thing that it incites you to do something. But I guess it's kind of um, hard to... Well, I don't know. Um. Yeah, um, sometimes suffering can be a spur to action. But I'll just say that, um, you know, you look at a lot of great spiritual teachers like the Dalai Lama in, in this day, the Buddha in his day, um, Deepama, if you know of her, uh, the teacher, James and me. They are coming from a place of being basically at peace. And yet they have tremendous energy to help others and be very active in the world in, in caring ways. So suffering doesn't have to be the only spur to taking compassionate action. And the more selfless we become, the less it acts in that way. And how would you say... Sorry to take over. I don't <laughs> Go ahead. How would you say to, to um, keep yourself detached from that, but still be motivated? Okay, so in, in the Buddhist language, the, the word we use so much is not detachment, but equanimity, or rather I would say balance. So balance is the state where we feel a kind of inner equilibrium or equipoise. So, you know, we're kind of at rest and things are okay, but if we see suffering outside, there's a movement to alleviate, and that's the natural movement of compassion. So we let that flow in its natural way, when we're already in a balanced place. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's all I want to say tonight. And uh, James is going to wrap up the evening for us with some metta meditation. So thank you all for coming. Um, if anybody wants a book signed, I'd be happy to sign books after. So feel free. Thanks so much, Guy. Just uh, just a comment. Um, first, thanks so much for the talk. As usual, clear on a, a very deep topic. Um, and one thing that that I how I approach this subject is one one um, way of looking at reality does not negate the other. So it's not like oh, you don't really exist, you know, who do you think you are anyway, you know, you're empty. Uh, but, um, but that when you see this other perspective, it brings a whole other way of holding this pattern of life called James or Guy or you uh, and there's this uh, this this pattern that is uniquely yours, but it's not fixed and static. It's an ongoing uh, transformative flux of life with its own history and all that you want to both respect and take care of, and 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 discover its gifts and and share with the world. It's just it brings it in a whole other way to be light about your life and know that you stop on the red light and you go on the green and you follow all the the rules of relative reality, um, but you're just coming from a much freer place. Uh, so don't don't uh, give up on who you are. Uh, just know the freedom that comes with seeing a, a wider perspective. Maybe you'll... Um, support you in having the the courage to keep on and the interest to keep on looking inside. So uh, we'll just close with a, a brief loving kindness. And may the earth heal soon. May that be so. So just going inside appreciating that we're all here sharing 
the Dharma together and what extraordinarily good karma we have to be here in Berkeley and hear a lovely Dharma talk and uh, come together with like-minded friends. And may we share all of our good fortune and merit and good karma that we bring to the evening and that we create here together coming here this evening may it be shared and be for the benefit of all beings everywhere and this beautiful planet earth may all know the highest happiness and peace Thanks very much for coming. Have a great week. Thanks again, Mr. Armstrong. You're cool. Yeah, and books in the back. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.